everyone, it's Charlie Webster here. Thanks so much for joining us for My Sporting Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up the conversation around mental health, both in sport and life. Season two is proudly supported by SportingLife.com, the home of expert analysis and insight for racing, football, golf, and much more. And today we're heading into the world of horse racing. I'm super excited to welcome champion flat jockey Oshin Murphy to the podcast. Oshin, welcome along. Hi, Charlie. Uh, it's super to be part of this. I'm really excited to chat to you and uh, hopefully we'll get through things. Uh, I'm glad. Um, I normally give people a bit of a clap, so I feel bad that I haven't done it because it might seem that I'm like favourite in other people. So welcome <laughs> along. I just realised. <laughs> um, no, you're very kind. I know before we actually started recording, I asked you um, what you've been up to because I was looking at your Instagram and I was very jealous of like pictures of South Africa. Um, how's things been over this last while? Because I can imagine it's been a tough period for you. Yes, yeah, the first time in my life I've had nothing to do and no focus. So um, so I tried to, first of all, I suppose I spent a couple of weeks uh, not really knowing what to do, a lot of time in bed getting up at different times every day, uh, no structure to my life. And then uh, my sister suggested that we could go to South Africa as we have family and friends there. So I came back from there about three weeks ago and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, I was never interested in going on a safari, but I managed to see the big five and I have a different appreciation for for wildlife having been there. And the Scenery is incredible. Uh, we went down to Cape Town, having been in Johannesburg, Nelspruit, Mala Mala, Kruger National Park. And, uh, you know, from mountains, the seaside, restaurants, uh, although we're under, you know, very tight restrictions with COVID, etc. But it was great to go and see it. Yeah, I can imagine it was nice to just get away from things and separate yourself from what's been going on and have a completely different environment. Just going back to what you are saying about structure um it's something that's featured a lot in this podcast and how important it is to have structure in mental health i'm just going to give a bit of background if you don't mind because some people might not realize that you were given a three-month ban after testing positive for cocaine but then the ban was reduced because it was found out that you didn't actually take cocaine but it was through contamination and you've had that three-month ban which comes up on March the 11th and i think you were saying that you're racing on March the 12th so just going back to that period of time about saying you you know you didn't have a structure of the first time in your life because you've raced horses since you were young. And I mean, the first time you were on a horse was like two years old. And then all of a sudden that's taken away. How did it affect your mental health? Uh, I suppose to begin with, when I realized that I was facing a suspension, so it would have been August. And I didn't know a time scale for if I was going to be suspended, when I would be suspended and for how long. So that was quite stressful and I didn't ride very well in August. Normally I ride maybe six or seven horses a day and on average I ride between 15 and 22% rides to winners. And in August that took a major dip and obviously as a result of that my confidence and my whole kind of outlook on life does as well. I remember not sleeping for days on end. You might get an hour here, you wake up there. Uh, your mood changes. You don't want to speak to anybody. You're, you know, whenever you feel down, people say, "Oh, uh, you need to voice your thoughts." And the best thing to do is speak. But sometimes you're not in the mood to speak. And I watched lots of motivational videos on YouTube. So many celebrities, uh, Denzel Washington being one, you know, really can get you in the mood and get you out of bed if, if you watch his videos. 
So I did that a little bit and I stopped feeling sorry for myself. That's what, the way I like to put it. And uh, I got through August and September took off. I won a group one and my strike rate improved to above 20%. The Jockeys Championship, which normally runs from May to October, uh, due to COVID, was extended to the end of November, or mid-November, early November, apologies. So having led the whole way from Flagfall in this Jockeys Championship, which means so much to me, it's like winning the Premiership in football or in other sports, maybe Lewis Hamilton being the Formula One thing. I'm not suggesting that horse racing is any way like this, but to me, that's how important it is. And the guys got very close to me, the, the boys behind me, William Buick and, and Tom Marquandon. Again, uh, October, things didn't look so well. Uh, I knew I was going to miss certain parts of the season because I had to travel abroad to America to ride in the Breeders' Cup. And um, I had all this drug case going on every week or every two weeks, you get letters in the post and I knew I had great people behind me uh, from Qatar Racing who employ me to all the people that put me on these majestic animals on a day-to-day -day basis. I thought everyone was fighting my corner but it was still very much up in the air and then on October 1st or around that date, I think it was October 1st, I was riding on a very cold winter's evening at Kempton and what people must understand is uh, unlike other athletes like I ride every single day. I ride in more races than anyone else in Europe. So the workload is quite strenuous. And obviously, when you're going for a jockey's championship or any other sort of thing, you don't take your foot off the accelerator. But yet I have this case hanging over me. And it's a huge burden uh, and also good horses to ride. So I thought the season was going to be defined in one or two ways. I was going to get my drugs thing at some stage, try and put it out back in my mind. And if I didn't win the Jockeys Championship, it would have been a season where I allowed what was going on around me defeat me. And if I could get it over the line, I proved that when most people would have crumbled or when, what I would say, most people would have thrown in the towel, mm -hmm. certainly a large majority, I um, picked myself up off the floor and no one can do that for you. You've got to do it for yourself. So uh, in October, uh, knowing towards the end of October, William B. got within four winners of me and I uh, went to Newcastle, which is a five and a half hour drive from my house, return journey. I'm fortunate enough to have a driver, so we can't add that into the workload. And I rode four winners. And the following day at Chelmsford, I had six rides or something. I won four of them as well. And uh, I was able to, didn't sleep easy that night, but I was able to um, to give myself a little bit of a pat on the back that having been written off by everyone, the newspapers, um, not sporting life, mind, but the, the general newspapers, the general public, you know, my own social media accounts, that I was able to lift myself up off the ground. That was a good feeling. But uh, it's a very yo-yo roller coaster effect. And um, when I went to America at the end of October, I was, I was just hoping that I had done enough. And I think I'll give you an opportunity to ask another question, but... By the time I rode in my last race, and I haven't ridden since in Bahrain, um, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to ride again or when I would want to race ride again. And um, and I think um, I'll let you ask questions after that. <laughs> no, honestly, you, you know, it's not it's not about me. It's really, I really appreciate you opening up to us, to be honest, and to me about that journey. 
um, because I think there's so many points about what you were saying because I think we um, we read the newspapers, <laughs> as you said, and I think in sport and in any profile, um, public life actually, um, the press can very much lift somebody up and pull them straight down again. Um, and there's this scrutiny of you're never allowed, I think, to make a mistake. Yet if we all look at ourselves, we've all made mistakes during our life. Um, I was going to ask you off the back of that, you know, you just said about whether you wanted to get back on a horse. This is something that you will go back into your childhood in a minute. This is something that you loved and you were brought up with. Um, like I said, you had horses from a really young age um, and you know, we're on horses at two years old, three years old, four years old. Did you think about quitting? Um, by by the time I had my um, my final court case, so there was a medical hearing, and they basically absolved me of the fact that I had taken cocaine myself. And then you have another few weeks, and you wait for your your actual hearing. And uh, I was obviously pleased not to get my full sentence of six months. I was a bit disappointed not to get zero, but they gave me three, and uh, I thanked them for for you know considering my case or whatever. But um, I just felt like I from I came to England in um, October 2012, and uh, I I've given it absolutely everything uh, from the beginning, the highs traveling the world, riding incredible horses, meeting brilliant people and everything that comes with it, with it you know, the dinner parties, um, meeting famous people. It's incredible. It's super, super privileged, but I put myself in that position. And then I felt like the world had turned against me over, um, over something I didn't really mean to happen. Um, and uh, and where, do you, where do you say that, you know, it's all about what makes you happy, but... Anyway, I, I probably spent a couple of weeks um, thinking about what, what I should do. And, um, of course, when I say I wouldn't get back on a horse, I mean, of course, I'd, I'd ride around the roads and, and uh, go watch show jumping and, um, and ride as a hobby. But whether I wanted to race ride again, and this is something I haven't really touched on, um, certainly not publicly. But I, I, did, I wasn't entirely comfortable because... The higher you climb, the further you fall. And yeah. I'm twice champion jockey. Um, I was the youngest person ever to win a Japan Cup. Uh, you know, I've tried very hard to do well. And if I do come back, which I very much hope so, I'm, I'm hungry and as hungry as I ever have been. Um, I feel great at the moment. As we as we speak currently, um, I'm, I'm in top spirits. But I need to achieve again. Uh, I can't just roll back into the jockey's room and uh, and go around like riding five horses a day and maybe winning on one. Um, if I if I make it my intent to come back and do well, then I really have to do well. And, you know, there are points, and even when things are going well, uh, where I have to force myself out of bed at six o'clock in the morning. But there was a turning point uh, in mid-December, having been given my... my um, my suspension and for ever, for the people watching and listening to this um we haven't rehearsed any of this i haven't written anything down this is just my thoughts um uh 
a boy, a little boy, who my mother uh, is friends with his uncle and has been for many years, uh, seven years old, uh, has this little grey pony, and uh, she sent me a video from like trotting around this field and putting his pony over small little fences, and she said that boy has just been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, I did a little bit of fundraising for him. I don't know how much they raised exactly, but it's irrelevant. Let's say they raised 20 grand or 50 grand for that, whatever charity it is. And uh, I realized that uh, however um, however bad I think things are at the moment, it's a hell of a lot worse for so many more people. So uh, I started going to counseling, which I still attend. Um, I think, you know, you can sit in these counselling sessions, they can have no effect on you. You've got to listen, you've got to speak, and um, you've got to uh, run through all the the things that you you find, uh, you know, that you know deep down are the issues. So for me, the issues are the workload, uh, but I, I, put my, I want that workload. The fact I'm a complete realist, so the self-criticism, when my strike rate isn't where it should be, where I want it to be. Mm. I want to be riding at 20% plus. That means one in five of the horses are ride wins. And I suppose what happens when you're when you're that focused and you're that self-critical is um you spend a lot of time a lot of the time down and it's how you deal with, with you know being down. Um so on a personal level, it's very easy to open a bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne and then you have that one, then you have a second one and then you might feel bad for a few days so you, you stay off the drink. So uh, trying to deal with all that, I suppose, is, is kind of where where certain people find themselves. And Then you watch other things on YouTube because, you know, you find spend when you're down, you spend more time away from people. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, you spend more time on your phone and social media, and uh, you know, lots of people go through hardship. And I think I think I think everyone does. It's just important to realise it. Mm. I think um, it's really important to recognise that whatever is happening to you is valid. And sure. I know we can always have people better off and worse off. Because I think we often say, oh, "Well, you know," like you said about that poor boy who's got leukemia which is awful, but at the same time, also how you're feeling is also valid. Because <laughs> um, I think we often go, oh, well, you know, got a roof over my head and um, some, you know, somebody else might not have, but it doesn't mean like you still don't feel low and have that um, challenges around mental health. I think it's also really brave to go and see a counsellor. Um, I spent two years with a clinical psychologist working through <laughs> various different things and I absolutely had to. And But I think it's the hardest thing because like you said, you have to sit there and you have to, you have to do the work and you have to reflect, right? And I think it was interesting what you were saying about, um, you know, if you're feeling low, you can pick up a bottle of wine and it will lift you for that moment and make you feel better and you can really see um, those patterns what do you think is the most important thing you've been you've learned about yourself during this period because you were saying about the self-critic what which I think a lot of people have and I think a lot of people that are professional athletes or really high achievers tend to have that because I think sometimes it can be a driver yeah it's my soul it's my soul driver and uh, and we haven't you know Nobody can remove that, uh, that kind of thing from my life. It's important I'm self-critical if I want to keep achieving because everyone around me is, is striving to do better. You know, everyone has dietitians, um, 
personal trainers. Uh, we're all striving to improve all the time. So, and I think part of the thing is um, if you compete in any sports, whether that's a amateur level football or um, whatever you do, athletics, you are always striving to do a bit more than you can. And uh, at times when it's not, uh, when you're not getting to where you want to be, uh, you do one or two things. Um, it invigorates you to work harder mm-hmm. or you throw in the towel. And um, and uh, there are many opportunities to do both. And I think I just send the message that um, you get lots of people saying that you need to talk and do this and do that. But just one single sentence is don't give up. Um, mm-hmm. Things turn around constantly. Uh, life revolves. And, um, and I think that's there in evidence everywhere. Is that what you say to yourself? Come on, don't give up. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, thankfully, I've never had suicidal thoughts. But, um, you know, when it came to riding again and deciding I wanted to race ride again, um, I really had to think about that seriously because there's no point doing something that doesn't make you happy. Mm. And uh, certainly over the last three years, my happiest times of the day are when I get up in the morning. Well, not initially. Uh, I don't think anyone can say that. But when I ride a very good horse, and it's never ran or something, so it's completely unraced, like a mm. like a like a baby horse. But it shows me that potential that it could be very good, and that's when the dream starts to become. It just that ignites that dream, if that makes sense. And uh, and that's when I was under no pressure. Uh, it was completely my own opinion, and I got a massive buzz, and I still do get a huge buzz out of that. And I rode out. A, couple of days so when I say ride out I went to the stables the trainers I ride for and uh, sat on a few horses right after Christmas and this was my the game changer for me I rode a few horses that uh, are no superstars but I realized very quickly that I can't miss out on this and uh, jockeys have shorts you know you ride until you're 30 or 40 years old I'm 25 now uh I needed to get back in the thick of the action. And although I still have, I think, four weeks uh, before I can ride again, I'm super motivated. I, I can mm-hmm. tell you all the things I want to achieve. I might achieve many of them, uh, but I, I'm going to try my utmost. I've, I'm, I'm in a good place today. Make sure to join Sporting Life, the UK's biggest horse racing website, for the very best coverage of the Chatland Festival. You can follow all the action with a live race blog, daily previews and free race replays. And get the inside view from Willie Mullins, Daryl Jacob, Alex Hammond and Ed Chamberlain. Visit sportinglife.com or download the app now so you're ready for the Cheltenham Festival. It sounds like you've done this full circle then. Do you think in a way, maybe this will make you a better jockey? It will make you have a longer legacy because you can see what it can do when you get to the top of the the game. You know, you did very well and people started talking about you. You started winning and then came with it, that pressure and that lifestyle. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Um, like I go back to one thing. Uh, I said the yo-yo thing earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's down to my mood, but... Uh, there's also a roller coaster effect that comes with the career of any 
sports person and without drawing comparisons, I don't think you can draw many comparisons, although at the same time there are certain similarities. But uh, for any sports person watching this outside of outside of anything else, I think Tiger Woods' story is incredible. All the bad press he received, uh, the, ter- <clears throat> the terrible headlines, and uh, now everyone adores him again. Uh, so I, I think that's that certainly uh, invigorated me. And, and you know, what whatever is said, people have short memories and reputations are often rebuilt. And uh, one has to be proud of themselves at times. Anyway. Mm, most definitely. It's interesting listening to you as well on the self-critic. I've done loads of work on on this kind of like inner voice and you were saying about you need that self-critic but do you think also it can be really destructive because it has a go at yourself and and tells you that you've not done good enough and I think the really interesting thing about horse racing um I'm not an expert in horse racing um throughout my career I've done much more around football rugby athletics boxing but as a, as a kind of like observer it find it interesting because you lose more than you win Sure, sure. And actually, I can cope with that as long as my strike rate is at a certain level. Right, okay. But just to touch on, and most people can um, can resonate with this, the, the sleeping things, you know, when when you when you aim to try and fall asleep at 10.30 at night and you look at your phone at 2.30 and you're still awake, mm. um, that isn't uncommon. And uh, and I, I, I used to worry a lot about how am I going to cope on on zero sleep, but your body will find a way. And mm. I think the fear of not being able to sleep is often worse than not sleeping at all. And I don't, I've never listened to somebody talk about that, but I just want to put it out there. Um, it's true, though. <laughs> I do that. I'm actually doing that at the moment because I'm finding it hard to sleep. And then I get, when I wake up in the morning, it's not necessarily the lack of sleep, it's the worry that I know I've not had enough sleep for what I need to go and do. Mm, like last night I slept from 11 all the way through but I can't tell you the last time I did that does that make sense Mm. uh, when I won the Jockeys Championship in 2019 I went to Spain late October before going to before going to Hong Kong and Japan and uh, we went for 10 days and I think I got more than 12 hours sleep for seven of them because just release the pressure appeared the weight off my shoulders uh, but suddenly it reappears again and I was trying to think this week and also it's another worry a silly anxiety why can't I sleep what what's making me stay awake at night I think it's the excitement of feeling like I'm in a good place again um, and uh, looking forward to getting back and people that are really interested in racing March isn't a very exciting month apart from Dubai World Cup night which is the last weekend in March. And I've picked up some super rides for the Japanese there. So that's a really welcome surprise. I wasn't guaranteed anything. And then having been going in, riding out every morning. So I'm exercising the horses, which I've never done since uh, I was uh, 18 or 19 years of age. It's normally maybe once a week or maximum three times a week. But it's allowed me to form a bond with these horses that aren't most of them aren't super talented they're not going to put my name in lights or um, make headlines but um but it's special to have a reason to get up in the morning mm. and that's that's the first thing like i remember watching another motivational video they say if you make your bed and brush your teeth every morning well then you can 
tick something off your list. And actually, before I called you today, I've been making a list of what can I do this evening. And I know the whole of the UK is in lockdown, but I can take the dog for a walk. I'm surrounded by countryside. Mm. I can brush the floor. I can make the fire. And they sound like silly things. But once you, once you compile that list, and you don't have to look at it again because it's in the back of your mind, but you know you've achieved something. It's like a, it's like, it's just in the back of your head, and it's mini goals, you know, like yeah. one step at a time. Um, because I don't know how you feel, Charlie, but it's very easy to sit in front of the television all day, uh, feeling sorry for yourself and your mood. However bad it started, it even gets worse and worse. So. Yep. I'm with you on that. And you said about how I feel. I think um, I definitely go through stages, especially recently, because um, I'm not a championship jockey and I'm not a professional athlete, but I'm a high adrenaline um, person who puts a lot on what I'm achieving. So I find it very difficult if I'm not busy. Um, and I have to write those lists as well, because then that's when I get the negative critical thoughts that tell yeah. me that I'm not good enough because I haven't done enough that day. So it really yeah. helps me writing the list of things and I think just listening to you I wonder also because you've not had that thing that you've always had which you've done every single day of your life suddenly it's taken away and I feel that when you know if I can't do my job or I have quieter times that's when I get quite low and that's when those intrusive thoughts come in because I'm not occupied and I think it's so important to have that the list of things that make you feel good about yourself because part of life is a sense of purpose right so even if it's taking the dog for a walk you know I think you said cleaning something out it it's like yeah. Done that. yeah and you're right and when you sit and watch the tv all day it might be the comfort thing you want to do but it just makes you feel worse about yourself I think anyway yeah I couldn't agree more um you know my idol is Frankie Vittori and uh he had a bit of time off riding uh, six month period and when he came back not just the racing public. And I, I can view this because I was there, uh, had written him off. I remember walking into Lingfield Park, which was south of London one day, and he was sat with his legs crossed. He was overweight. He, his, he, he didn't look like a jock. He looked miserable. He wasn't clean shaven. And for him, obviously, that's completely out of character. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't speaking to anybody. He was very low and... He had like one ride that day on a complete outsider. That was useless. But he kept battling away. He kept forcing himself to go racing. One ride here, one ride there. Uh, he wasn't being spoken about in the press badly. A comment from someone who thought they were funny saying his career is over. And uh, a couple of months later, he turned his career around. He got the job with Al Shikab, Sheikh Johan, started riding for John Gosden. And suddenly from, from his career, his life, his mood, I suppose his whole mental and physical well-being being demoralized and, and uh, non-existent, I suppose. We need to use two words for everything I've described there. Um, he managed to climb back up and for the last three years running, he's been number one jockey in the world and he's the face of world racing. So I really admire him and also draw on him for inspiration sometimes. Mm. Although we're different people, no two people are the same. Nobody's going to feel the same way about things, but uh, but I think it's important to to um, draw on, on things like that. And he, you know, he's somebody that um, I think 
you know, listening to you, I can relate so much of what you're saying and I'm in a very different position of you. But then I think it's probably helpful for you to have somebody like Frankie who's can relate to a lot more of the kind of small, those things that are relevant, specific to being a jockey. Has he, if, has he helped you during this period then? And if so, yeah. like what's, what's the advice been? Yeah, literally. Um, he keeps telling me not to go off the rails. Uh, I think there was, um, there was a lot of people very worried uh, when I suddenly found myself a free time. You know, I broke my collarbone once and I took 22 days off. Uh, I'm, I'm after two months off now. People were worried. And, um, he was one of them, and as was, you know, my, my, my employers and, um, and, and lots of people. And, you know, even, even now I get text messages of people just checking in to see that I haven't done anything stupid. I haven't been drinking excessively, etc. Um, which is very kind of them, but um, it gets repetitive and mm. people have your best interests at heart. And, but, uh, you know, as soon as I see a, a, a message or some, someone's phone number come up, sometimes I just won't answer, or, depending on my mood, of course, or, or read the text message. So, so I feel like in the last few weeks it's been a bit different, but certainly before Christmas, that, that's how it was. I think you make a really good point and you said it a bit earlier as well that I think when you're in that place you actually tend to isolate yourself more like I'm not somebody who would naturally reach out and actually if I'm having a, having a bad day I tend to not want to speak to people even though that might actually help me at the time I can't I just don't want to and I think um, I can relate in terms of messages Um I don't want it to bring it about me but I wanted to tell you this thing because um I was critically ill four years ago and I came out of hospital and people were texting me all the time. And in the end, it just got really, as much as I know they love me, it got real because it was like, how are you? How are you? And it's like, I'm not okay. What do you want me to keep saying to you? Yeah. And I felt it was a pressure on me to, to almost lie and about how I genuinely really deep down was feeling. So it's very different, but I kind of can relate to that scenario. Um, what what is it? I'd love to know for people that are struggling at the moment. What is it that is making you get up? Is is getting you through that day, or was getting you through that day? You know, over the last two months. Yeah, I think uh, so. My sister uh, moved in with me kind of last summer uh, when the when the whole drug thing came out. Uh, I think she took it upon herself more to keep an eye on, on what I was doing and whatever whatever else and. Um, I think it's a hard one to answer, Charlie. Uh What kept me going through, through from from July to to um, to December, uh, the want and the willingness to prove that uh, this wasn't going to break me, although I was I, <laughs> I didn't feel great. Uh, I was very I was very unhappy most days. There was nothing capable of fulfilling me. Um, and I think after that, uh, it was you know, the chance to do other things and, and see a little bit of the world, raise money for charity, ride horses for fun. And then now it's the, the chance to come back and try and prove to people again, don't write me off, please <laughs> give me uh, another chance. And, um, thankfully, Qatar Racing and Andrew Boulding and you know most of my sponsors and ambassador roles haven't turned their back on me, which is great. So you know I owe something to them. Um, life is precious, and you know you see so many times people are 
torment with illnesses like yourself. And, uh, and I think I realize that I'm lucky that I can get up, walk around, go outside. I'm a physically healthy young person. And, um, by taking the right steps and by making myself fall into a certain routine, uh, my mental health is, can be perfectly healthy as well. You're actually very inspirational um, talking to you. Uh, you are, especially at 25. I think you can, you've obviously done a lot of grappling with your own mind and yourself. Do you think that that's something that was always there? Because um, I've seen your mom being interviewed a few times about <laughs> your career. <laughs> um, and she, you know, has said that you've got that grit and that determination anyway and that drive. And I remember watching a, an interview of you when you first moved over to England, which you must have been, what, 17? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you could tell you got that kind of determination. Where's that come from? Yeah, my parents did, did a super job of trying to raise. And uh, you know, a child at a certain age, 14, 15, 16, uh, has their own choices to make on, on what they want to do um, with their life. And, and uh, mine was made very easy, you know, my, my parents put me in the right direction. But they made me acutely aware that to get anywhere needs very hard work, a lot of hard work and uh, a bit of luck as well. And Although my uncle Jim, so Jim Collity, won three gold cups as a national hunt jockey and one as a trainer. He achieved so much. He won an English Grand National or a Grand National. He's basically only won the race that most people, non-racing fans, would know about. And uh, he used to point out to me, because I lived with him when I was 15 and 16, that, uh, that I was the chances were I wasn't going to make it as a jockey. And then I went to Tommy Stacks, uh, which is a training. Chan- sorry, take you back. The chances were you weren't going to make it as a jockey. Yeah. Is in the fact that very few people do. Yeah, very few people do. And, and, uh, and you know, it, I mightn't be good enough. It uh, doesn't matter how much hard work I could put in. Um, I needed the right opportunities. And, and uh, you know, it, he really motivated me in a very nice way. And when I was sent to Tommy Stacks at age 15, there was two other boys. I don't want to bore people, but there was two other boys. This is in Cashel in Ireland who were more talented than me. Yet I'd been riding since I was two years old, but on like children, one is not on racehorses. And it was so apparent that they were better than me. And then I went to Aidan O'Brien's, which is like one of the best trainers in the world. He's really kind to take me on uh, when I was 16, 17. I'm a similar age to his children. So uh, we became good friends and suddenly I started to improve. And then I went to Andrew Baldings, which is obviously just outside Newbury in Berkshire. I made the trip across. I was 17. I'd never been away from home. Really, I'd been in a foreign country maybe twice in my life. And I used to cry every day, ring my mouth. Uh, I used to, I can imagine I gave her a headache. It's very unfortunate to admit this now, but it's also quite lighthearted. Uh, and there was 10 of us. There was 10 boys, uh, similar age to me, who wanted to be a jockey. I thought, this is impossible. I've got absolutely no chance. So I rang my uncle Jim and I said, uh, I, I want to um, I want to come back to Ireland and uh, I've got no chance here. And he said, uh, no, you're staying there. I probably cried a little bit more and uh, I got my head down and then six months later I got my license and then um, by September that year I rode four winners a month and then suddenly people started to talk about me uh, in the press that I might 
have a chance as a jockey. So that that was kind of my 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 kind of thing. And I was never more focused. Uh, so in those times when I wanted to be champion apprentice, which was like a junior jockey, um, I don't know how to. Maybe on the academy in football and, and rugby, etc. Um, I wanted to be champion apprentice so bad I, I wouldn't socialize very much. Although I had friends, uh, but I was very focused. Uh, I wasn't drinking at all, and uh, the drive was really there. And then, 2014, I was champion apprentice. 2015, I found it a little bit tough. I was now competing with the best jockeys, the Ryan Moores, the Frankie Dettori's, the Christoph Sumions in in other sports terms, the, the really really tough ones, and. Um, and uh, I wasn't as good as him, and that was a bit tough to take. <laughs> so I worked a bit harder. I started getting lessons on a mechanical horse from an ex-jockey who won the Derby, which is the mecca of horse racing, from a flat jockey's point of view. And I improved a little bit more. And then 2017, I kind of got into the top 100 in the world. I won my first Group 1 races. In 2018, I was number two in the world behind Frank Ujori. And then 2019 was good as well breaking statistically and, and numerically kind of all the records that I had wanted to break. I won a Japan Cup and, you know, I was great in front of 110,000 people. I was driving through Tokyo afterwards and the horse and I were on all the kind of billboards around Shinjuku and Shibuya stations. Millions of people passed through there every day. So I was got back to the hotel and uh, all the staff were out there clapping. You know, try and when you feel really low, you try and recall all these good memories. And then 2020, COVID happened, so everyone's life took a massive turn. I don't know many people that benefited out of COVID by the people that, by the companies that make PPE. And uh, that was, yeah, make, <laughs> make masks and, and sanitizers. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and 2020, sorry, uh, I, I slipped a lot in the in the um, world rankings. Uh, I was down to like sixth by by Guineas weekend in June, but I won the the Kipco 2000 Guineas, which was my first classic. So that was a big trail. I rode like seven winners in in that meeting at Newmarket over the three or four days. Um, I felt good and uh, I felt good throughout June. I was happy to be back. We had a interruption like all other sports during COVID. And uh, then I got that news in July. I just didn't know what to do, but um, that was one chapter in the book. And we, I think we've covered the chapters in between. And hope, I hope um, by March 12, we finish that book on the first seven years of my career. And uh, anyone who's listened to this can has a little bit of an insight into to the ride that... that um, I can take them along, not on the back of a horse, but in, uh, in a in a personal feeling sort of view. And um, and the next seven years might have mm. might be seven years. Maybe I'll retire when I'm thirty, but um, but we'll have some some more fond memories. I think um, it just made me think that I bet it'd be so interesting for you to listen back and watch this, say in like five years' time. Yeah, maybe I might be embarrassed to admit <laughs> no. of my many of my many faults, but um, but I can promise you, uh, nobody even you know doesn't matter what sports you're into or who you idolize, be it actor, actress, singer, songwriter, 
nobody is faultless and and uh, are seamless. Um, mm. Just some people are capable of voicing uh, their feelings, and um, and yeah, this afternoon I am. I think it takes a lot of courage and strength to do that. Um, so I'd, I think you'd be proud looking back. Um, I wanted to ask you a few a few more things about about I suppose like racing itself and yourself. <laughs> um, what about the relationship? I just wonder the relationship you have with your horse and the psychology of that. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, uh, I don't see or I've never met many of the horses I've ridden before before I get on them in the paddock. So if I have a thousand rides in the year, that's probably at least 500 different horses. I will know less than a hundred of them. So I need to get to know them quite quickly, but it's nice. It's a good feeling. So we have a little bit of a, of a chance in the paddock when these horses walk around and show you the spectator, what they look like and give you an opportunity to decide if you want to place a bet, etc. And then when I'm cantering to the start, so I might decide I'm going to go very slow on this fella because he's a little bit keen and I want to, uh, you know, reserve as much energy as possible. Or I might go a little bit fast to the start because I think this fella is lazy and he needs to wake up or he's a bit of a scratchy mover. So I want to get him moving better. Uh, it's like you doing a doing a decent warm-up before, before you go for a, a run or something. And then when they're in the stalls or before they go in the stalls, they'll circle a little bit. So all the time I'm trying to pick up on their behavior, whether they're nervous, uh, if they actually like me. Some of them uh, might resent humans a little bit. So I'll make an effort to be really, really kind to them and, and try and try and sweet talk them. But obviously in a, in a different way before the race starts. And then I'm just all the time looking for certain certain things. I'm assessing how that horse might handle the going, uh, the distance, if they look well in their coat, how much condition they're carrying, whether they look very fit or they look a little bit fat before the stalls even open. And then in the race, once the gates open and we all get in a, in a, in a racing situation, I'll have to decide if I think we're going quickly or slowly, whether I'm going to move a little bit later in the race because I think the race might slow down in front of me and I don't want to hit the front too soon and then get collared on the line, you know, so a closer comes past me towards the finish. Uh, it's difficult to to explain, but I'll do my very best, you know, everything that's going through my mind. Lots of our tracks in Britain, unlike other countries, are very undulating and uh, and it's important to try and balance the horse. Remember, this horse is, most of them are between 450 and 550 kilo. When I'm riding, I'm no more than 55 kilo undressed. So it's a lot for me to try and contain, along with the energy and the relationship I formed with this horse. So without going on too much, I make an effort to, to get inside his head and, and hope that, that uh, we can form a little bit of a partnership for those. for those. I'm probably on their backs less than six minutes in total. That's unbelievable, because I often think, um, I do a lot of sport myself, but definitely got this control element in myself <laughs> and I do a lot of endurance sports and I think I'd find it hard that I'd have to rely on something else and not just my own strength or my own ability or my own mental attitude because sure. I think you've got to rely also on that jockey and that relationship it must be such a I don't know a unique feeling you mentioned about weight um 
you said 55 kilograms. The other thing I wanted to ask you is about how how do you find that pressure or has it always been natural for you around the weight restriction, which is quite unique, I suppose, like to cycling, boxing, but also being a jockey? Because that, I don't know, is that, what's your natural weight? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. Uh, if you feel okay, of course, like, because yeah, I yeah. can't imagine your 55 kilograms and it's no. just interesting because I'm, I'm quite interested in um, behaviors around this and, you know, it must be hard to make sure there's not like almost a compulsive behavior in a relationship with food because you have to get down to 55 kilograms. And I think there's those stories of like people having saunas and like, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the boxing world and yeah, inducing vomit and things like that. Only if you feel comfortable talking about it. Sure. So, um, so, uh, when I was, uh, 15 years old, maybe 14 years old. I was at Killarney races and a very famous horse racing guy, let's just say that, uh, told me I was too heavy to be a flat jockey uh, when he asked me what weight I was. And I was seven stone 12. And I was so, for people who aren't aware, what, what's that in kilo? About 49 kilos. And that really broke my heart. So so uh, I stopped eating a little bit, uh, a lot actually. I used to try and eat like one meal a day and then might not eat anything for two days maybe and then you have a binge so you create this cycle um and then what happens is uh your metabolism slows down and your your mood deteriorates and at 16 years or 15 yeah 14 15 16 those three years i can talk for uh initially um your mood deteriorates and you end up getting heavier because the binge eating starts you're not eating the right things your body's starving you hold on to everything. Then I started sweating in the bath. Now, I'm a long way off being a jockey at this stage, and I'm sweating in the bath for what reason? So then your body holds on to more water because it knows that you're probably, first of all, not going to hydrate properly, and secondly, you're going to sweat. Uh, that was fine. I battled with that um, you know, for, for a couple of years. And then I came to England, and uh, there wasn't really a scales in Andrew Bowling's apprentice uh, kind of hostile situation, so didn't really know what weight I was and then he said let's it's time for you to go on your apprentice course you're you're uh, big enough and bold enough now to try and be a jockey so I went to my apprentice course and I was nine stone and I'm afraid uh, that's 57 kilo that is too heavy to be a jockey to be a flat jockey so they gave me my license anyway but only because I was attached to Andrew Bowling who's like the best person to be with if you want to be a flat jockey but they shouldn't have realistically i was like way outside the guidelines but my they did this dexa bone scan uh, they were happy enough with like, all that sort of thing that my my bones were were healthy and i had enough calcium etc i wasn't going to break easily so i started working on my weight running at night i got it down a little bit and um, within six weeks of of being nine stone uh, my, i had my first rides and i was doing seven stone 12 so i'd lost i'd lost more than six kilos in six weeks uh started riding i managed to keep that off for for uh the basically the majority of my apprenticeship i would walk around within three kilos of that i was like waking up 52 53 kilos every day which which i was happy with um i was working very hard now you're riding you're riding three or four horses in the morning driving yourself racing because you don't have a driver at that stage or you share a lift uh, go on racing, riding slow horses, maybe nicking a winner or two a week, doing your best though. But this is how it is for everyone. And then obviously 
I get a little bit bigger and stronger. And I found myself the last couple of years not struggling with my weight much at all. I normally wake up between 55 and 56 kilo. I'm in a privileged position that I don't do lightweights. For me, lightweights are like 54 kilos very regularly. I do it every weekend in Japan. So, yeah, basically on this break that I've had, uh, having had my weight pretty stable for a long period of time, I got up to, I think, about 65 kilos, uh, which is 10 and a half stones. So I basically put on between 8 and 10 kilos in two months. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a struggle to get back off. But it's also been a motivation. I've been going to the gym every day slightly fear that I carry a lot more muscle than than um than some people uh, so I've got to be very strict on on what I'm eating at the moment uh, I'm basically having an orange at breakfast a protein shake at lunch but it has everything I need in it to survive and then vegetables in the in the evening but the overground ones try and stay away from the underground ones so it's pretty limited what I can eat at the moment but a lot of cabbage a lot of spinach broccoli, mushrooms, uh, and it's coming off me, but slowly. You see my face is still quite chubby, but I have four weeks from today. So um, nobody's weight is perfect. Nobody will go through life, whether you're a boxer or a footballer. When you have time off and you become less motivated to exercise, you will balloon and uh, you won't feel great about yourself. Uh, Body image probably affects the vast majority of people more than you know, anything else. Uh, I don't think many people look in the mirror and think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm beautiful. So, um, so certainly when I couldn't fit in my trousers and shirts anymore, uh, I, I knew I needed to start losing weight. And I've begun, um, I was 61 and a half kilos this morning. So I'm still a long way off being a jockey, but I've got about another five and a half, six and a half to lose. So I can do it, but um, it's hard work. Um, I'm today in the gym. I did um, five 500 meter sprints um, on the bike, and I did eight kilometers at uh, 11 kilometers an hour on the treadmill. Um, I did these squat ball things. I don't know, lean up against lean up against the wall against uh, sitting on a squat ball and I don't know all these strange things that I'm not I'm not really um, used to doing. But they say that's going to make me lose weight. So, so anything that will help at the moment. Oh dear, it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about that process. Um, I fear I could carry on asking you a lot of questions. and I feel like I've been talking to you for a long time. Um, are we going to see you in Cheltenham? Um, I think we're going to do a preview for Cheltenham. Uh, yeah. I normally do a bit for ITV and Sporting Life at the actual, at the actual meeting. Um, but this year, obviously, with COVID, I think it's highly unlikely. But, yeah, it's super exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, as a racing fan, I'd just like to point out it's it's the most exciting week of the, of the year because I'm not involved personally. And uh, there's such a great build-up. And the horses are so good. Um, yeah, it, nothing beats it. Um, I've been to Wimbledon finals, Champions League finals. I've, I've done the lot. But Cheltenham is, and it depends on your preference. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you. Champions first. League finals. <laughs> yeah. Versus Cheltenham. Yeah, Cheltenham's different league. I've been to both and I have to say the atmospheres are incredible in both. 
but I think I'm a massive football fan from a young age. So <laughs> I think that affects my soy. Well, um, I fell asleep during the Wimbledon final, so um, so yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, I know you've touched on so much, and I've really loved our conversation. But what would you what with is is there like one piece of advice you would give anyone? I know we've gone through a lot of stuff. Is there one thing that would you think would help people at the moment or that's helped you? Yeah, um, it's very easy saying never give up, but there isn't enough included in that sentence. But at the same time, there's lots included. Uh, I think you need to hit rock bottom to climb yourself back up. And, uh, and <clears throat> although nobody wants to feel that, badly or in that way uh, sometimes you've got to let yourself get there uh, to enjoy things again and um, I don't fear uh, nobody is top of the world at times mm. but uh, it's different for everyone nobody's going to go through the exact same uh, feelings but um, when you are feeling down you may not want to talk but remember there are people there willing to listen and wanting to feel your problems or hear your problems because I promise you uh, sometimes hearing somebody else's problems makes you feel better yourself and and that sounds terrible but the case in point is that poor child with leukemia um, you know I, I realized that he's in a worse situation than me much much worse and uh, and I owed it to him and my family and, and more so than anything myself to um, to lift myself up and create a routine. Mm. Thank you. I think that's really important. Never give up. Um, and you've got masses of a potential. So use it. <laughs> that's my bit to you. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Oshin. It's been incredible talking to you. And I definitely can't wait to see what happens next in your career and when you come back. Thanks very much, Kelly. Don't forget to check out our previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are loads more episodes on the way. Remember to visit sportinglife.com, the home of expert analysis and insight for racing and your home for the Cheltenham Festival. And remember, you can reach out if you're really struggling, as me and Oshin have been talking about. There are charities such as Mind, the Samaritans, and Sporting Mind. They're just a phone call away. People do understand and want to help. And you can also text SHOUTS, which is on 85258, if you don't want to speak to anybody on the phone. And you can also contact me on social media too. Take care, and we'll speak again soon.